Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitor. Today, we are joined by the newest member of the Everything Compliance gang, Sarah Haddon. Sarah is the editor of Corporate Compliance Insights, CCI, and she brings a journalist voice to the Everything Compliance gang. She's worked in compliance now for, I think, about eight years, associated with uh, CCI and Corporate Compliance Insights. She recently took over as the owner of CCI, and we welcome her to the Everything Compliance gang. I know you will find her insights not only a ton of fun, but very useful for your compliance professional practice as well. The lineup for this week's episode includes Matt Kelly, who's going to discuss best practices around closing, disclosing reporting data, and using interactive technologies to improve codes and policies. Jay Rosen, who talks about how to reposition compliance as a revenue generator. Sarah is going to speak with us today about effective compliance training and actually how to do it better. And then I'm going to join the gang as a panelist this week talking about the three top enforcement actions from 2019 to date and what do they tell us about where FCPA compliance may be headed in the future. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm a compliance evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we are joined by our new panelist, Sarah Haddon. Sarah is the editor-in-chief of Corporate Compliance Insights, and she is our latest uh, panelist to come on board to Everything Compliance. So, Sarah, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. I'm thrilled to be here. I tell you, I feel like the popular kids have invited me to join them at their table in the lunchroom, and I'm going to do my best to not do anything dorky and to be cool enough to stick around. Well, I'm sure you will be, and I'm looking forward to hearing what's on your mind. So thanks for joining us. Well, we've got uh, the coolest guy in compliance joining us, so that would seem appropriate. Uh, Matt Kelly, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, and I'm Tom Fox. So our order today is going to be Matt, Jay, Sarah, and then Tom. So Matt Kelly, what is on your mind? Hey, Tom. Um, So what is on my mind today is a new report that Ethisphere published earlier this week uh, well worth a compliance and ethics officer's time where compli- Ethisphere looked at some best practices among its 128 world's most ethical companies from 2018. And I was very intrigued by the report. It singled out a couple of different uh, practices at these 128 most ethical firms that I think are well worth compliance officer's time. I'll walk through what stuck out for me. Um, first, the uh, Ethisphere report said that most ethical firms really try to be more transparent about allegations of misconduct within the enterprise, which is a good idea in theory, but the actual amount of transparency these companies give does vary, and I wanted to dig into that a little. But I really liked that point because Ethisphere did put its finger on what I think is probably the most difficult challenge corporate compliance officers face, which is employee cynicism about all of the company's professed 
ethical commitments and employees who basically say that sounds nice, but we don't believe it. We think you investigate these things, but not those things. We think you play favorites. Fair or not, right or wrong, that sort of attitude is out there, and it is very corrosive and difficult for ethics and compliance officers to overcome. So I was thinking through, you know, really, employee cynicism, you overcome that by building trust from the employees in what you are saying. You build trust by showing people how serious you are with your ethical commitment. And I choose that word carefully, showing not telling people, which would mean that you therefore should let employees look at what the compliance function is doing. So this is about transparency. Um, and then the Ethisphere report dug in a little bit as to what sort of transparency compliance officers give to their ethics and compliance program. Um, probably surprising nobody from the compliance officer level upward to your CEO, to your board, Yes, lots of companies share those findings with the brass in the boardroom or in the C-suite. Um, most of these, most ethical companies seem to share their findings at least quarterly with the board, if not more. Look, that's all great and we should do it. But I think ethics and compliance officers need to dwell more on what transparency do you share about your program's activities from your level downward through the rest of the organization? Because you live and die on how well employees trust the ethics and compliance program. And there was some messiness there around uh, what compliance officers are doing. So 91% said, yes, we share examples of misconduct with our employees, like in a newsletter or in a company intranet. Again, that's great. But what I, I thought was disappointing was, on the other hand, only 35% of these companies gave employees a more comprehensive sort of like aggregate report of here's all the complaints we've had so far. Here are the investigations we're doing. Here's the subjects we're looking into. Here's how many cases were substantiated or not. Only one out of three, and this is among world's most ethical companies. I'm sure there are less ethical companies out there and the numbers might be even lower, but only one out of three are sharing that. And I don't think that's wise. I think the more aggregate statistics you share, the more employees can understand the overall rhythms of what the compliance program is doing. And if you just share piecemeal examples that may be useful sometimes, but somebody somewhere is going to say, well, yeah, you investigated those people, but you didn't investigate these people, right? Why not? Maybe they're favorites and, you know, all sorts of nonsense that employees can, you know, run away with in their heads that you want to try and knock down. So I thought that was just a very thought-provoking best practice uh, about maybe we should share more on, um, you know, the activity going on in your program. Uh, two other points about codes of conduct and written policies that I thought were interesting. Um, more companies using interactive media technology with their codes of conduct. I think that's a great idea. It is not a new idea, but it should be more widespread. Um, I think that lets you turn your code from that thing comply employees sign and attest, uh, as an attestation to show that they've read it to really more of a training tool. Uh, they can see the videos. They could see examples. They could see a message from the CEO about ethics and compliance. They could explore at their own pace. You could perhaps collect data about what they are exploring and maybe inform your training on that kind of stuff. Um, 
codes of conduct are getting shorter. Uh, Ethisphere did not provide specific examples on this but or statistics, but they did say over the last several years, uh, world's most ethical companies, the average code has gone from 9,000 down to 7,000 words. And they are focusing more on general principles and then linking to other policy documents where employees can uh, go nuts on the compliance details. Again, great idea. Uh, I am more a fan of Boeing's code of conduct, uh, where it is one page, 341 words. I counted them. That's it. And then the uh, actual policy manuals for Boeing are probably three inches thick since it's so highly regulated. But one page focusing on several core principles. There are seven in total, I think, at Boeing. Um, Okay, some people might roll their eyes that Boeing is not the best example of ethical conduct at the moment, given its trouble with the FAA and the Supermax uh, 737 jet. Fair point. But I do think that Boeing's general direction with its code of conduct, simplicity, shortness, you can't really beat that. And I liked it. Um, and then the last thing I will say is that Ethisphere looked at 400 policies from most ethical company firms and graded them on scores of one to five across a couple of different criteria about tone and structure and authority, um, all of which generally policies scored pretty well on that one to five scale, except for use of learning aids and examples in your policies. Um, and then again, I think in the modern world with modern interactive technology, we could probably do better on that front because if you give a interactive policy, you're going to be able to conjure up educational videos or um, good pithy examples from the previous year or something like that. There really isn't any reason to keep written policies as just static written policies. Um, including all the written examples would maybe be helpful, except you're just adding more words. The more interactive we could make them, the better. And the stickier that is going to be with employees uh, and their sense of what the company's ethical commitment is. And that's what we're talking about. And that's what companies are going to need to do in the 2020s because ethical awareness is going to become more of an important thing. So um, I really like that Ethosphere report. It's well worth in a compliance officer's time. But those are the big three things that had jumped out at my mind. So, Matt, did you see anything in there uh, that specifically dealt with uh, a younger workforce, a millennial workforce, a workforce that wants to communicate using more of these interactive tools? Or was it your observation of the interactive component to the uh, code of conduct that really caught your attention? You know, it was the latter. Um I didn't see anything specific in this document about millennials wanting to communicate more, although I've seen that theme in other industry reports or in internal audit, the world, they talk about that quite a bit. And I think that point is valid. But my point is more, we have the technology to take policies, codes, anything written that people are supposed to read and then sign um, and convert what it actually is to be more of an interactive thing and become a training tool. Um, in addition to being that written thing, somebody has to print out and sign. And I get that that's always going to be part of it. But um, just because employees read a policy and sign a policy, that does not actually mean they know the policy or have learned what it means. I'm sure compliance officers are shocked to hear that. Um, but interactive technology kind of knocks that 
weakness down and does make it easier and better, uh, more of an experiential thing to impart awareness of what the policy is and get that into employees' heads. So I, I think it was a it was an excellent point that peaks here and there throughout the whole Ethosphere report. And there, there were other issues that Ethosphere did bring up um, that I haven't even mentioned here about governance and uh, board diversity and whatnot. So the, there's lots, but the interactive technology really jumped out at me as an important theme. Jay Rosen, do you have a question for Matt? Yeah, Matt, um, does the research talk anything about um, recency versus latency and, and repetition and whether there's um, an optimal amount of time to train people on certain facets of your code of conduct? Um, nothing that really jumped out at me on that point, to be honest. Um, I did, I mean, I have heard anecdotally that uh, you have to tell somebody something at least seven times before they really remember it instinctively. Among my own kids, I don't think that's true because I've told them more than seven times to clean up the room and it hasn't worked. So I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I do believe that you know when you read something versus if you experience something, um, you know I think we all know at a gut level that experiential learning is probably stickier because it is more comprehensive and you know the senses it stimulates and the, uh, the impression it leaves on you. So that, that was my big takeaway. Uh, Jay Rosen, what is on your mind? Well, uh, Tom, I'm revisiting a, a theme that you and I have spoken about many times on our weekly podcast. And um, I want to talk about how to reposition compliance as a revenue genera- generator. And I'd like to make the case for compliance as a business advantage. Um, Prior to my current persona of Mr. Monitor and another not-too-distant life of mine, I was Mr. Translations. And besides simply updating my Twitter handle from at FCPA underscore translations to at FCPA underscore monitor, I'm still tasked with helping clients to justify proactive ethics and compliance expenses that upon first blush do not appear additive to their bottom line. These two positions have afforded me a unique perspective to observe the different ways that corporations approach ethics and compliance issues. And some companies see compliance as unfortunately a check the box nuisance, while others are drinking the compliance Kool-Aid and they benefit from using compliance as a business advantage. From what may seem to be a simple concept, the actual implementation is fraught with much hand-wringing and cost justifications. For one example, one of my previous global customers engaged my translation company to help translate their global code of conduct and communication policies into more than 30 languages. While it took our team a couple of months to complete the translations, it took our clients less than six weeks to return comments from most of their in-country ethics and compliance ambassadors. While some of the reviewers were members of the ethics and compliance function, the majority of others came from legal, finance, HR, and other operations of the company that weren't specifically involved in compliance. Not only were they able to leverage their specific subject matter experts in commenting on the translated documents, but they also had been successfully cultivated to understand the importance of the task, whether or not it was, quote, officially, unquote, part of their jobs. 
This collaboration unearthed some of the perceived internal obstacles and institutional objections that ethics and compliance practitioners may face when trying to lay the groundwork to use compliance as a business advantage. Some of those uh, complaints may include, if compliance is not one of my key performance indicators, then what's in it for me? We've always done it this way, so why change now? Will my division ever realize any return on investment from helping compliance? And we have a huge fire to put out. Let's put this on the back burner. Now, we know that some of the perceived reasons why it won't work as any good salesman or ethics and compliance practitioner, we must be prepared to rebut these temporary roadblocks and overcome our colleagues' objections. In the global company example above, my client had managed to win the buy-in from many key information stakeholders of the company, including finance, HR, internal audit, and legal. Thus, they could leverage HR as globalized and heirs to gain an early insight into potentially troublesome employee practices. They could piggyback off of internal audit to conduct international ethics and compliance audits and to gauge employee adoption. They can allow finance to follow the money and sound any warnings or red flags about inappropriate sales or commissions. And finally, they could utilize the company's vast legal knowledge base from IP to anti-corruption and labor policies. By breaking through these corporate silos and combining best practices, a company moves from the perspective of only realizing synergies and efficiencies to arriving at a destination where compliance can become a revenue generator. Thus, HR now looks at the previous problem hires with anti-bribery and corruption issues and uses this information to prevent future hiring missteps. Finance can now focus on high-risk markets and develop additional screening processes to detect fraud at an earlier stage. Legal now collaborates with HR and ethics and compliance to produce more conversational and easily understood guides for employee behavior, kind of echoing the point that Matt just made. And sales and marketing now use their special persuasive sauce to help publicize and speed the adoption of ethics and compliance initiatives. Bringing it all back home, we have learned what the internal obstacles that we face are, and we have overcome objections, and we have demonstrated that operationalizing good ethics and compliance policies is not only a revenue extractor, but when used properly, becomes a revenue generator. Our challenge as ENC practitioners is to operationalize ethics and compliance into our daily business processes, and then and only then will we see that compliance is a business advantage. Jay, what do you see as the differences, or you started out by observing uh, as uh, someone in the space for some time as a vendor, the different approaches corporations take. Do you have any general ideas on why corporations would have a a difference in approach to compliance, check the box vis-a-vis drinking the Kool-Aid? I think a lot of it, uh, as we were just talking about before, comes experientially. And unfortunately, if you've either had a company that has had past ethics and compliance lapses, or if a company is in a space such as extractive industries or 
um, automotive industries or any of the popular sweeps that we've seen over the past few years, if they've unfortunately gone through those situations, they're more highly attuned to what happens. Uh, the workforce has more experience in dealing with consultants and investigators. So I, I think it becomes a little bit more uh, common nature for them just to uh, get with the program. Whereas you've got other companies that either um, they might feel they're too small or they're not publicly traded, but they may not respond as quickly to the uh, opportunity to drink the Kool-Aid. Matt, do you have a question for Jay? Well, n not so much a question, but I, I do want to say I have often thought uh, the way one of the ways that compliance can be a revenue generator for a firm is if you do drink the Kool-Aid, which I always recommend people do, um, if you drink the Kool-Aid and can demonstrate your ethical commitment in clear and visible ways, it makes you a better third party for all the other companies that are out there looking for ethical third parties. Um, it is a somewhat subtle point that I think we all overlook as we talk about uh, the our, un, our unending need for due diligence on third parties. But we neglect to mention that also we ourselves are always somebody else's third party. So if you are more attuned to ethical issues and if you can demonstrate that, it makes everybody else, you know, their due diligence upon you that much easier and, uh, you know, grooms you to be a better business partner. So, like, I, I wholly agree with Jay's premise here and just I, I would like that argument to sink in with more of the corporate world a bit more that uh, of course compliance and ethics and commitment to it can be a revenue generator for you i think you guys have just named this episode the drink the kool-aid episode <laughs> uh sarah Adden, what is on your mind what is on my mind? Well, I'm actually going to be talking about experiential learning as well, but I wanted to start off by talking about boondoggles, specifically the cool stuff, the perks or the experiences that can come your way when you're a working reporter or you're representing the media in some way. And I think in my career, one of the coolest was in the early 90s when I was a young newspaper reporter in the Dallas area. And I got to take a ride in the Red Baron pizza plane. This was the 1941 Stearman biplane that they used for acrobatic stunts at air shows. And they threw a parachute on me and took me up in the air. And we did about 20 minutes of loop-to-loops and rollovers and death spirals and I don't know what else. But it was thrilling. And I managed not to make a fool of myself by losing my lunch in front of everybody. Um, that was thrilling. And Tom, so is this. So again, I do... Thank you very much for this opportunity to fly by the seat of my pants. Um, but moving on, back to boondoggles, I had another fun media perk the other day, and it started with a conversation that I had with the CEO of a company that offers an innovative, an, excuse me, an innovative approach to compliance training, specifically as relates to the Me Too movement, harassment, bullying, that sort of thing. And of course, as we all know, compliance training comes in a lot of forms, right? Lots of flavors. But I think that what this group is doing may be unique today. The problem that they aim to solve is how do you, as a compliance officer or a manager or an HR director, how do you prepare yourself for difficult, awkward conversations when someone is reporting something? And I'm not referring here to your policies and procedures, 
not talking about paperwork or processes or investigations. I'm talking about the real human interactions that take place on the front lines when an issue is coming to light. And you all know the kind of scenario that I'm referring to. You're in your office and an employee comes to your door. They close the door behind them and they say, hey, have you got a minute? And as we know, this person is not asking for permission to come in and close the door. This person is asking for permission to toss you a live grenade. It's going to blow up your day. It's going to blow up your week, maybe blow up your career or even your company's reputation if you don't respond effectively. So how do you prepare to be effective when you're not prepared in the first place? I mean, human beings and emotions are involved here. People are messy. And you were caught off guard. You you were focused on whatever you were about to do, your own work, or maybe you were focused on that big salad that you were planning on eating at your desk in peace. But now you have to snap to attention and you have to get this right. So this company's approach involves role-playing and not the kind of role-playing that we've all done in some kind of a company training retreat thing where you and a colleague, you know, you read off a script while everybody watches you and you pretend to be talking about something. No, this is different. They do it online. It's one-on-one, and it's in the form of a customized live video conference call, and they use professional actors and actresses to play the part of employees, to play the part of the employee who says, hey, have you got a minute? And the scenarios vary. Maybe this employee is being sexually harassed. Maybe they need to blow the whistle about something they've seen or heard, or you know, maybe they have an axe to grind and they're making the whole thing up. You don't know it's coming, just like in real life. And that's the point. So I heard about this. We talked about it. I was intrigued. And they offered to set one up for me so that I could experience it. And I'm a good sport. So, of course, I said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And let me tell you, this simulation was eye-opening. It was so realistic and convincing that I truly had moments where I forgot that this wasn't real. They're professional actors, like I said, and they don't break character for a moment. I had this woman and she was playing the part of a younger female employee and she was shaking and she was upset and she was angry. And I literally had to calm her down with my voice and my body language so that she could continue. And when I say that it felt real, I have to tell you that at one point I felt the urge to like pluck a Kleenex from the box on my desk and actually offer it to the woman on the screen to dry her tears. Now, I won't go on and on about the scenario that I was presented with, but I do want to touch on what I learned about myself. I thought that I would be effective at this. I figured I could pretty much wing it like you do, but when I finished up, with what ended up being three related connected role-playing conversations in a row, I realized how much I was impacted by what I will call recency bias. I was super taken with the story that the first woman told me, and I made like an unconscious emotional investment in her story and in her because she was first. So when a second female employee came into my virtual office to tell me her side of things, what she had observed about this fictional situation, I was less inclined to believe her. And had she come to talk to me first, it might have been different. And I really reflected on this later. 
on the fact that I was a good manager to the first employee, but I don't think that I was as unbiased or thorough in my interview with the second party. And as a result, I did miss some important details about what happened. I failed to ask some questions that would have helped HR investigate and that might have prevented additional fallout in my department with my hypothetical team. And for the record, you you do get evaluated when you do this. That's part of the process. That's part of the service that goes along with this whole deal. You get some 360 feedback. So what is my takeaway here? Well, specifically, I think that it's if you really want to be prepared for something that might happen, you do need to practice it. And of course, Matt mentioned earlier the Supermax Boeing 737. If you have a choice, do you want the pilot of that plane to have reviewed the software or do you want him to have actually gone through a flight simulator as Canada apparently is going to be requiring? And I think we know the answer to that. But um, just reading about this sort of thing, reading your handbook and your policies and procedures is probably inadequate. You need to practice these kinds of hard conversations. You need to be open to the fact that just thinking that you might be good at something that hasn't happened yet is an act of hubris. And secondly, specifically, it's not a matter today of preparing for something that might happen. It's about being prepared for what will happen. If you're in management or compliance or HR, this will happen. And that, um, that actually brings me to my final point. As we all acknowledged every day, the Me Too movement signals a shift in our culture. And compliance training has to reflect that shift. Attitudes are evolving. And I think that means our training methods have to evolve as well. If you're developing or leading training, you need to innovate like this company is. And if you're being subjected to that training, be open to feedback. Be open to the the notion that you might not get it right the first time, which is why you need to practice. I think being open to learning a new way to behave and think and a new way to lead is an important mindset for those of you who are in power. If employees today don't feel that when they report something internally, they'll be heard and believed, they're going to find another platform by which they can be heard. They'll talk about it on social media, right? They'll talk about it to the media. And then when that happens, suddenly that earlier reference I made to a hand grenade being tossed at the company's reputation, that's suddenly a, a pretty apt analogy, I think. So just to, just to sum this up here, I reviewed a report earlier this week that was released actually late last year by Navex Global. And in it, they summed up the responsibility for handling harassment claims effectively by saying, and I paraphrase this, harassment generally is about power. To take ownership of a corporate culture, to change it, to take ownership of that power, you have to use your power to bring about change because Neglect of power can be as destructive as abuse of power. Sarah, do you think that uh, you talked about how do you get more effective or how do you become more effective, I should say, is by practicing. It sounds like this is actually something that you need to practice uh, in a similar manner and not really uh, do book learning, do study, and then prepare yourself because even your own of very visceral and physical responses uh, wanting to hand a uh, Kleenex um, 
and noting your own recency recency bias. Uh-huh. Uh, sounds like things you, you really have to, to try to practice so you learn about yourself and so you can uh, correct if necessary. I, I agree, absolutely. And I, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there, learning about yourself. I thought I would be good at it. I thought, you know, I'm a woman. I, I know what these sorts of things are like. I, I'll know what to say. But in fact, human beings are unpredictable. We ourselves are unpredictable. I think until you actually subject yourself to to rehearsal, to a fire drill, a full-on practice session, you can't be completely sure that you'll be as prepared as possible. And now maybe let me bring Matt into this uh, discussion and along the lines of the following, Matt, I was struck by uh, Sarah's, Sarah's response uh, to the training, but also when you talked about the interactive nature of the code of conduct training, and it seems like this is really pushing us towards understanding that the more interaction you can have in a variety of different techniques, uh, the better off you're going to be in your overall communications going forward. Would that be a even something we could draw upon from the Ethisphere report? I, I think so, yeah. And, you know, what stands out to me and why I, I get it on my soapbox a bit about interactive technology is all of the points we are talking about right now that, you know, you want to practice this sort of stuff, you want to be interactive, you want to be uh, aware of all of your issues and everything else. This is well worth a company's time to think about and to train with managers. So the point being that we do all of this already, and then you have a written code that you make people read and refer to like, you know, some sort of encyclopedia when the need arises. Um, that's duplicative effort. And that second effort of just having a written code and having a written policy, um, that w- why? It, it's not going to work as much or as well anyways. Uh, if we have these very potent sort of mechanisms and uh, means to impart you know, real absorption of knowledge into a manager's head, into an employee's head, you might as well meld all of that with the written materials we've been churning out ad nauseum for 20 years anyways, um, and make those something that can do a bit more than be that which the employee signs, and then you stick it in a file until something comes up. And, you know, plenty of people would say, you only make me sign the code so that if I screw up, you've documented and you can fire me. That's a terrible attitude, but it's not wrong. Um, you know, you can do so much more with what the technology is out there, and you're going to do it anyways because training is something that we think about so often, and training oftentimes doesn't work very well. And we're pioneering these new ways to make it work better. That's great. Then sweep all of this up and you know, kind of meld it all together into something much more powerful. We have now had three significant FCPA enforcement actions in 2019. FMC, Fresenius, Cognizant Technology Solutions Corporation, and MTS. All three demonstrated a 2017 FCPA corporate enforcement policy at work. In a speech to the 33rd Annual ABA National Institute on White Collar Crime last month, Assistant Attorney General Brian Binkowski spoke about the corporate enforcement policy. Initially, this policy has led to greater transparency from the Department of Justice. The DOJ strives to have open books about which factors we find aggravating, which we find mitigating, which is penalized, credited, and ultimately weighed. 
It is more than having transparency. It's about clarity and conveying the right incentives for responsible corporate behavior and not simply slapping fines and penalties imposed for penalty's sake. It is about fairness from the DOJ and fairness for not disproportionately punishing innocent employees, shareholders, customers, and stakeholders. So now let's take a look at what the each of these enforcement actions shows us under the new corporate enforcement policy. With no self-disclosure, Fresenius was not eligible for a declination, yet the company did receive a 40% reduction from the minimum of the U.S. sentencing guidelines as its criminal penalty. They achieved this reduction through an extensive remediation and robust cooperation with the Department of Justice investigation. It not only included the robust nature of the investigation, but assistance to the department. Fresenius went above and beyond in obtaining and providing documents, securing witness testimony and presenting witnesses to the Department of Justice and disclosing conduct that was outside the scope of its voluntary self-disclosure. In the area of remedial action, the company took swift steps to terminate or separate from employment those directly involved in the bribery schemes, enhancing its internal controls, policies, and procedures, and upgrading its third-party program and increasing oversight and monitoring. Cognizant Technologies. While the FMC or Fresenius FCPA enforcement action did not feature a self-disclosure by the company. The Cognizant FCPA enforcement action did. This self-disclosure was a critical element in the company receiving a full declination in the face of C-suite activity directing the bribery scheme. About that declination, Brian Benkowski noted, notwithstanding the fact that the misconduct reached the highest level of the company, we declined prosecution. We have made it clear why. The company voluntarily self-disclosed the conduct within two weeks of when the company's board learned of it. As a result, the department was able to identify the culpable individuals, and indeed, we have announced charges against the former president and former chief legal officer of the company for their alleged involvement in the scheme. MTS. In the MTS FCPA enforcement action, there were none of the factors present which led Fresenius or Cognizant to receiving reductions. In applying the corporate enforcement policy factors, MTS did not voluntarily disclose the matter to the Department of Justice. Its cooperation and remediation was lacking because it was slow to provide information and evidence in response to DOJ requests, and it failed to discipline senior executives involved in the conduct. The DOJ noted a mitigating factor was that the Uzbek government expropriated the company's telecommunications assets in the country, resulting in no realized pecuniary gain to the company's telecom assets within the company. As a result, the DOJ and MTS agreed the company's total fine would be equal to 25% above the bottom of the U.S. sentencing guidelines. Beyond MTS's penalty, the company's wholly owned Uzbek subsidiary pled guilty to the conspiracy to violate the FCPA's anti-bribery and books and records provisions. The DOJ also announced charges against two individuals, the former Uzbek government official Gonara Karamova and Bazgat Akamad, the former CEO of the Uzbeki subsidiary. Those who still criticize the Department of Justice for even developing the corporate enforcement policy or applying it. Such criticisms fails to even consider the application of this new corporate enforcement policy in practice and therefore does not speak to the compliance aspect of the policy or even the compliance professional. For it is in the application of the corporate enforcement policy where the rubber meets the road. One can only conclude from the application of the policy since its inception in November 2017 through the additions and modifications that it is working. Companies are receiving real benefits just as the Department of Justice intended. 
So with that, I thought we might uh, move on to uh, shout outs and or rants. So why don't we go the same order? And uh, Matt Kelly, what's on your mind regarding a shout out or a rant? Uh, Yeah, sure. I have a rant and um, maybe even a provisional rant for somebody else in a related matter here. But the rant is to Stefan Passantino. Uh, that name may ring a bell to political junkies out there. He is the former ethics counsel at the White House who stepped down from that role last summer and has since been working as one of President Trump's personal attorneys. So specifically this past week, uh, Passantino warned Mazars USA, which is the audit firm for the Trump admin, uh, organization, uh, not to comply with a subpoena that Mazars has received from the House Oversight Committee to turn over financial records relating to the Trump organization for many years. And Passantino said that Mazars should not do this. So what we have here is a alleged ethics professional now urging an audit firm to ignore the rule of law. Uh, that is ridiculous and shameful. And I get it that Passantino was probably never really serious about the ethics part of his job while working on the federal payroll. Um, but still, this is just an appalling example of misplaced priorities. And uh, I just you have to be astonished that uh, here is this ethics lawyer telling an audit firm, no, don't comply with the subpoena or else. It's not clear what the or else actually might be from uh, Trump's attorneys. I think we'll, we'll wait to see that. But that leads me to my provisional rant against Mazars if they actually go along with Passantino's harebrained idea Um, Shame on them, because I don't see how an audit firm could actually do investigations or provide advisory services to clients about ethics and compliance matters. I don't see how you can do that with a straight face on one hand if you are also flouting a subpoena from a sitting House Congressional Oversight Committee on the other hand. Uh, That makes no sense. And so I hope that Mazars will exercise good judgment and tell Passantino Forget it. We are not going down on your sinking ship. Here's all the records you want, House Committee. Uh, I do wonder, because I suspect Mazars is probably not entirely um, misconduct or allegation-free in what they may have been doing for the Trump administration organization for years. Uh, but let's see how this all shakes out. But, you know, full rant for Passantino, provisional rant for Mazars if they actually go along with his ridiculous idea, which is just appalling. That's my rant. Jay Rosen. So uh, this is kind of Trump related. My shout out is to uh, a tweet that I just read this morning from Josh Barrow, who's a business columnist for New York Magazine, and he's also the host of KCRW's Left, Right and Center. And this comes from yesterday's uh, Mueller report that was released. And it says The president also asked Don McGahn in the meeting why he had told the special counsel's office investigators that the president had told him to have the special counsel removed. McGahn responded that he had to and that his conversations with the president were not protected by attorney-client privilege. The president then asked, quote, what about these notes? Why do you take notes? Unquote. Lawyers don't take notes. I've never had a lawyer who took notes. McGahn responded that he keeps notes because he's a, quote, real lawyer, unquote, and explained that notes create a record and are not a bad thing. And the president said, quote, 
I have a lot of great lawyers like Roy Kahn, and he did not take notes, period, close quote. So my, uh, my shout out is to Josh Barrow. And then by way of that, uh, to Don McGon for being a, quote, real lawyer, unquote. Sarah had. All right. I have a rave and my rave, I guess, is in the form of maybe more of a shout out. And it's to Internet service providers everywhere, to ISPs and to server administrators, anyone who yesterday had to handle the increased traffic load on the interwebs when the Mueller report was released. No telling how many people accessed and read and downloaded that 448-page document. But I had such a feeling of deja vu yesterday, and Matt, I bet you did too. I was taken back to 20 years ago, September of 98, when the Star Report was released. I remember where I was at the time and who I was. I was a young mom, and I was on maternity leave from my job as a reporter, and I was in my house in the suburbs with a baby, away from a good internet connection and a newsroom. I had dial-up at the time, AOL, surely, and I remember thing one, wondering if I would be able to download the Star Report before my dial-up connection failed or before my, my infant son woke up and needed me. I remember that. But I also remember at that time being so struck by the magic of the whole thing, not the contents of the report, though I'll, I'll admit, like many Americans, I wanted to get my hands on that thing so that I could read the naughty bits. But I was struck by this momentous shift in how we, as the American public, got to consume the news of the day. We could all have it at once, all of it. We didn't have to wait, in this case, for a media outlet to process the Star Report and then regurgitate it for us, analyze it. We didn't have to wait for our local newspaper or magazine to reprint big chunks of it so we could read most of it. Instead, we had the whole thing almost instantly, and we all had it if we wanted it at about the same time. And of course, there, there are a lot of similarities between those two documents in that there's much debate about semantics. As we recall in the first go-round, it was, what is the meaning of the word is? And today we're arguing about the true definitions for collusion and obstruction. But what's different? Well, thanks to the internet as a delivery system, the media role has shifted, as I've said. But I think our role, the public, in the drama has shifted somewhat too. Whereas before we were just an audience, but in the decade after that, you, you see the rise of social media. So not just an audience, we, we got to become kind of the Greek chorus, that kind of a participant in the drama. We got to easily publish and post our own thoughts and opinions online. Whereas previously, if you wanted to have arguments with total strangers about politics, you had to actually do it in person at the local coffee shop. And it makes me wonder, of course, what's next for all of us? If we, if we went from passive audience to Greek chorus, what now? Well, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably going to be judge and jury. And by that, of course, I'm referring to election day when we get to cast our votes. So that's my rave. Shout out to, to internet service providers. A shout out to the internet and its ability to inform us and educate us, certainly to entertain us and perhaps ultimately to mobilize us. So mine is more of an observation, and it begins with the noting of a passing of Charles Van Doren. Charles Van Doren received a significant amount of fame 
uh, unfortunately, at the end of the day, not for a very positive reason. He came from a storied family. His father and uncle were Pulitzer Prize-winning authors. His mother was a novelist and an editor. Van Doren himself was an instructor at Columbia University. He rose to fame as a top participant on the game show 21 in the late 1950s. Uh, he walked away with $129,000 in winnings, which at the time was the equivalent of $1 million today. He also appeared on the cover of Time magazine. He received 20,000 fan letters, uh, brushed off dozens of proposals of marriage, and indeed signed a $150,000 contract to appear on NBC shows for three years. But uh, as meteoric as his rise was, his fall was equally uh, dramatic. His fall came from his participation in these same quiz shows and the quiz show scandals of the late 1950s, where some of the top TV game shows were found to be rigged, with selected participants being given the answers to questions beforehand. Uh, Van Doren uh, was given the answers to questions in 21, and then he had the temerity to lie to a state of New York grand jury. Uh, before he testified to Congress, however, he fessed up to congressional investigators uh, that the game shows were rigged and he had been wrongfully provided answers to the questions before they were asked on the air. Van Doren never publicly accepted his responsibility for this massive fraud, only stating, quote, I would give almost anything I have to reverse the course of my life in the last three years, end quote. His New York Times obituary noted that he had agonized in a moral and mental struggle to come to terms with his own betrayals. Uh, this was a pretty big uh, revelation uh, when it came out in the early 60s. And um, my observation would be that uh, now this type of conduct is is pretty pervasive with our political class. So uh, I'm not sure if that's a rant or a shout out or, as I said, just simply an observation. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this concludes our Everything um, Compliance podcast. And as we now know, it's the Drink the Kool-Aid episode. I wanted to especially thank Sarah Haddon for joining us for her first episode and everyone else. And I look forward to our next uh, get-together. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have any questions on the Everything Compliance gang, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, Rosen at j rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com, Matt Kelly at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com, and Sarah Haddon at sarah at corporatecompliance.insights.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join us for our next episode when the Everything Compliance Gang gets back together to discuss topics of the day. Everything Compliance is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.